0: Let's look at Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations are, to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what restoration looks like and our responsibility to the sanctification of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that what your son is teaching to his disciples and and by your spirit to us, we pray, Father, that um, you would work by your spirit to turn the lights on in our dark minds, that we would see the word of truth, that we would understand it, that we would rejoice because of it, that we'd be repentant before it, that we would be changed by your word. We pray, Father, if there are any in here who don't know your Son, who are continuing unrepentantly in sin, that they would see their sin and their need for Jesus. And they would turn to him and be saved. We pray, Father, as we see this passage applied to our own hearts our own minds as we recognize that we have not taken responsibility well for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have not loved them well and we do not bear their burdens well and we do not rebuke them well we don't forgive well father as we contemplate all that that you would that you would help to to change us by your spirit so that we would repent and become ever more obedient to your son, as we are increasingly made like him from one degree of glory to another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps the most difficult part of pastoral ministry is the realization that you bear responsibility for the sanctification of others. See, I already struggle with my own sanctification, my own growth in holiness, right? My own tendency to want to chase after sin. So it can be a lot to bear to realize I also have to struggle with you for your sanctification. And it can be difficult bearing another's burdens. It can be emotionally exhausting as we hurt with you. It can be difficult bearing another's burdens um, because it can be trying on my patience. That's one reason, due to my own pride. Why won't this person get it together? This is starting to wear me out. I would have gotten it together by now, right? It can be difficult because bearing another's burdens can lead them to responding poorly and then attacking me personally. I tried to show them love and now instead of dealing with their sin, I've become the bad guy in their life. I am their problem now. There's been more than one time when I've attempted to intervene with a brother um, who chose to attack me for it. And they rejected a relationship with me, and they gossiped about me to others. And it can be incredibly painful, but, but even more painful is that the, in, then they're attacking me is their excuse is, becomes me not to deal with their problem. So now I start to hurt because they're seeing their problem incorrectly and this eventually leads to their own self-destruction by the grace of god by the grace of god some of those people have eventually repented of their sin and realized i was attempting to help them and have come back around many however have not to add insult to injury when you're working to restore someone in sin others can be harsh critics of how you're helping another and bearing their burden with them They have little to no interest in helping this brother. Rather, they have bitterness toward that brother that gets then directed toward you for being exceedingly patient or not handling yourself the right way every time, or you said the wrong thing in this situation, you didn't say the right thing in this situation. You guys know what that's like. And that responsibility in ministry can be a lot to bear on a full-time basis. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that to let you know that this isn't just my burden to bear as a pastor. This is your burden and your responsibility as well. See, last week I said we don't generally think of ourselves, as I began this passage in Luke 17, we don't generally think of ourselves as responsible for the holiness of other Christians, Now, do we bear ultimate responsibility for their holiness? No, they do. But we bear responsibility for our impact in their lives. And we don't like to think about ourselves that way. And Jesus clearly comes at that as he begins to talk about the way that the kind of responsibility we bear for our brothers and their holiness. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 17, and he, that being Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations... To sin, stumbling blocks, things that will make you slip up and trap you into sin, are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So here comes the command, pay attention to yourselves. See, pay attention to yourselves, watch yourselves, be certain that you're not one of these people causing a stumbling block for a brother or sister in Christ. These are God's children. And so we're to be vigilant that we don't set the trap for someone else to step into sin. That we don't put the rock in front of their path that they then trip over. Particularly when it comes to teaching them falsely. So, I talked about that in some depth last week, and you can go hear that more if you want to in last week's sermon. But Jesus then gives a couple of more commands here with regard to our responsibility to our brothers. Look at verse 3, the second part of it, after the command, pay attention to yourselves, which goes with verses 1 through 2. Now, let's look at the second command in verse 3. If your brother sins, there's your conditional clause. If your brother sins, then what? Rebuke him. Rebuke him. And if he repents, here's your next command, forgive him. These are commands. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now there's a lot here. There's a lot here because, one... We are so isolated and individualistic as Christians, we don't think about how our actions might actually cause another to stumble into sin. So that's why I took a whole sermon to deal with that last week. We don't think about, because of our isolation, ten, isolationist tendencies, our individualistic bent, we don't tend to think about our responsibility to rebuke a brother or a sister in Christ who's in sin. We generally think it's optional. We often think about it like this. I saw that brother in sin... Maybe I should say something about it. I don't know. Maybe I'll tell some other people about it. But we're commanded to rebuke them. We also find it difficult because we're commanded to forgive people. And we don't understand biblically what rebuking really looks like, nor do we often understand what forgiveness is. So I'm going to break forgiveness off and take it next week as a topic because Unfortunately, most of what floats around there out as the guise of forgiveness is somehow forgiveness being separated from reconciliation. So that forgiveness becomes some kind of vague sentimentality in which I get the right feelings about you. That is not what forgiveness is. And so we'll deal with that next week. But today I want to deal with rebuking because I think we don't ever see our responsibility to do this. And generally the only time we ever rebuke people is when their a sin, offends us, and the reason we rebuke them is not for their reconciliation to Christ and to us, but we rebuke them because it makes us feel better to put them in their place. It's a kind of vengeance. It's a kind of making them pay the cost for their sin against us. That isn't what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying if your spouse ticks you off, get back at them by rebuking them. This is a command for the way that we care for one another. Now, this sin may primarily be sin against you. If you go on and look there in verse 3, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In the sense that you're being called to forgive that brother. And then it goes on and says, and if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It might be that this sin is primarily talking about sin done against you, or this following command to forgive primarily here refers to the goal of rebuke, which is reconciliation. Depends on the scholar you read. But whether it's predominantly a sin against you being referred to here or not, the fact remains that we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in sin, and they have a responsibility to us when we're in sin. But our attitude is generally something like this. It's none of my business. You ever said that? I've said it. It's none of my business. Their sin isn't my problem. They should get their act together because it isn't my job to carry them. Yet that isn't what the Bible teaches. Jesus commands us to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ. Who's in sin? Commands us. I have lots of people who come to me telling me about people they have caught in sin and asking if they're responsible to do anything about it. This conversation happens weekly. Let me state this clearly. Yes, you are commanded to do something about it. But how and when do you confront their sin? Whether against you or Or not. See, how do you do it and when do you do it? That's where we need to apply biblical wisdom and teaching. So let's break this down, this how and when, into four categories with regard to rebuke. You ready? Here's what they are the goal of rebuke, the motive of rebuke, the attitude of rebuke, and the process of rebuke. You ready? So let's look at the goal of rebuke. The goal of rebuking your brother or sister in Christ is restoration. Or reconciliation. That is the point in verse three and four. Pay attention to yourselves. Says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In other words, there's the sense in which you're coming to your brother to rebuke him with the hope of forgiving them. That's the posture you're taking. It's not rebuke him. And if he repents, consider whether forgiveness might be an option for you or not. Forgive him. The idea is when you bring this rebuke, your goal is restoration. Your goal is reconciliation. Your goal is not just to level a rebuke for somebody. That's the goal. Look at Galatians chapter 6 because I want to look there and provide a little bit more insight to this passage looking at when the Apostle Paul taught on a similar thing. If you aren't familiar with your Bibles, Galatians comes right after 2 Corinthians. So we're in Luke, then it goes John, then Acts, then Romans, First and Second Corinthians, then Galatians. If you've gotten to Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, you've gone too far. So Galatians, we're looking at chapter 6 and verse 1. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, here they are being caught in sin. And this goes back to what Jesus is talking about when you rebuke someone who's in sin. Let me be clear about this. This isn't sin that you speculate speculate might be happening in their hearts. This is attitudes and actions you've seen demonstrated in front of you. This isn't, brother, you know what? You talk too much. And what that indicates to me that you talk a lot and, and interrupt other people is that, that you're full of pride and you don't care for people and you only think that you're the only one who has anything important to say. Now you're drawing lots of judgments and conclusions about their heart you don't know. What you do to them is you come to them and say, brother, you talk too much. You don't listen well to other people. You interrupt. It's a pattern. And it offends other people. You, now, let the Lord, by His Spirit, work out in their hearts what might be the motive for that. Because you don't know. When you jump to the next conclusion, you're, they, they immediately stop listening. I remember I had a professor, it was one of my seminary professors who I speak to a lot, and um, he and I talk on the phone, and we're both big talkers, and we both have lots of opinions. And so we, we get going with each other, and, and often cut each other off, and um, and some reason... I, you know, he seems to notice that I do it and I notice that he does it too but he's been a brother to me enough to say he actually one day says on the phone, you know what, you're cutting me off too much. You really need to work on that. I've noticed when we talk a lot on the phone, you, you tend to cut me off a lot and don't let me finish what I'm saying and, and uh, that's wrong. Like, you know what, you're right, brother, I do. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's, that's, yes, I will. He didn't say to me and therefore what I've concluded is that you don't really love me, you don't care about me, right? He doesn't know. It might just be just general pride that I think that it's better for me to talk than to listen. It may have nothing to do with him. But we want to draw conclusions about people's hearts. That's not what's being addressed here. What's being addressed here is sin via actions and attitudes that we witness. And he goes on, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual, that's referring to believers, those who are walking by the Spirit if you go back to chapter 5, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice that word restore. It's, it's getting after the idea of reconciliation. Your goal in rebuking this brother and in walking him through this process is for the purpose of restoring him. And the word that's used there is interesting because it was originally a medical term that had to do with mending someone's bone, broken bone. Somebody's got a broken bone and you come along and help mend it. You help restore them. Later got used often by fishermen who would mend their nets. And they would carefully, as they got holes in the nets, they would come through and they would begin to mend those nets. Saying, that's your responsibility. The goal is not just so I can say my piece about what I think of you. Or just to let you have it or to give you a piece of my mind. The goal is to see you restored to Christ. See, I'm not coming along and seeing you have a broken bone and saying, here, let me kick you there. That's what a lot of us do with rebuke. We see a broken bone, we see a torn net. And rather than mending it and resetting the bone, right, or resetting the bone, we we just kick them in their broken bone with a rebuke. And we pretend we're loving them. And our goal isn't restoration. Our goal isn't reconciliation. It's just to say what's on our mind. That's not what he means by rebuke. By rebuke, he means you're coming alongside this brother and you're helping them. The motivation, second point, the motivation for rebuke, if that's the goal, the motivation for rebuke is love. The motivation is love. Look at verse 2. We'll come back to verse 1 in a minute of Galatians 6. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you're coming to a brother who's caught in sin and you're rebuking him with the goal of restoration and reconciliation, when you're doing that, you're going to come alongside and you understand your responsibility is to bear their burdens with them and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? That we love others. That we love them. When your motivation is to love them and bear their burdens with them, then your motive—when that's your motive—then you are ready to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. Sorry, you're ready to do the hard work of bearing the burden of others. You're ready for it. You never rebuke a person from any other motive, because what you'll do is run them over and leave a train wreck behind. Further, when your motive is love, you don't nitpick. You don't nitpick them. As you know, love covers a multitude of sins. You start to understand better, I love this person. My motive is to love them. I'm not here to be the Holy Spirit in their lives and nitpick them to death. I'm here to come alongside a brother who is in sin. So when I start to see habitual patterns of sin, when I start to see sin that is gross immorality that's bringing harm to them and offense of the name of God now I'm coming alongside of that brother and rebuking him with the goal of restoring him out of a heart of love for him where I want to bear his burdens where I recognize that as I rebuke this brother I may have to not just say my peace and move on I may actually have to walk alongside him through very difficult times for a long time to help him unwind that sin in his life that's hard work You may have a brother who's so caught up in sin that as you rebuke them for it lovingly with the goal of restoring them, they look at you and say, I have no capacity that I know of to walk through this. I don't know how to overcome it. I want to repent, but I need help. And now you're potentially meeting with them over and over constantly helping them carry that load. Helping them unwind that from their lives. You aren't just I want you to understand this. When Jesus commands you to rebuke, you aren't just out there throwing words out at people that what they're doing is wrong. You're seeking their restoration of the Lord. You're seeking their reconciliation with you. You're seeking to love them well and carry their burdens with them. That's hard work. Don't start rebuking people until you're ready to sign up to bear their burdens with them. You ought to lovingly pursue your brothers and sisters in Christ with the wisdom of someone who loves them and wants to help them carry their burden. Third, what's the attitude of rebuke? The attitude of rebuke. Look there, there's really four attitudes I want to give you briefly. The first one is in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now notice that in a spirit of gentleness. You're to be gentle. But you know, that's just not me. I'm not gentle. I just tell it how it is. Well, then grow up. Grow up. Start to press into Christ. Learn what it means that God came to you with gentleness. You know, God could have utterly destroyed you because of your sin. He could have just said, You know, I'm the kind of God that's so holy and doesn't, that is so offended by sin that I'm just going to tell you how it is. You're this, you're done, goodbye. It's not how he treated you, is it? He had every right to. Instead, he lovingly gave his son for you to restore you to himself, to reconcile you to himself. And yes, did he rebuke you in your sin? Yes, he rebuked you. And he provided you a way out through his son, Jesus. And he walks alongside you and he cares for you. And he points you again and again to his grace and his son. He doesn't just smack you down and move on because that's just how he is. See, that's just your pride talking. I used to struggle with gentleness and and still to some degree do struggle with gentleness and I'm always having to get a hold of that before I go rebuke somebody. I'm having to stop, which really leads to my fourth point, And I'll say it right now instead of waiting for it. I'll say, it. I'm having to be prayerful prior to rebuke so that I'm not impulsive. That really is the fourth one I was going to make on attitude. It's a prayerful attitude. I have to stop and pray and not just speak out of impulsiveness so that I get a hold of what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it so I indicate to this brother or sister in Christ, I love you and I want to walk through this with you, not I'm just here to speak my mind to you about your sin. So I have to pray that God is honored in the situation and not just that what I say is clear in my mind no matter how it sits on somebody else. I got to pray. So I want to be gentle and I want to be prayerful. Third, I want to be humble. Another attitude is humility. Look at 6, one again. At The end of verse 1 of chapter 6 of Galatians. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. See, this is to rebuke them humbly, not pridefully. I'm I'm doing this after I've confessed my own sin. I'm not walking up with a giant plank coming out of my eye, hitting them against the head as I point out their speck. That's what we do, isn't it? We don't confess our own sin first. Deal with our own hearts. Recognize that but by the grace of God, there go I. I would be in the same sin as that brother and sister is in if it weren't for God's grace, because often we don't believe that. And we say things that indicate we don't believe that. You want to know what they are? I can't believe they would do that. I would never. It's a pretty high spiritual appraisal you have of yourself. You would so if it weren't for the grace of God. And you better believe that before you go rebuking somebody. I hear it all the time. I I actually get to reflect on my own heart every time I hear it from people when they come to me and say, oh, can you believe that person has issues? I hear that phrase all the time. They have issues. You have issues. I have issues. We all have issues. Jesus died on the cross because we have issues. He didn't go to the cross for spiritually cleaned up people. He went to the cross for broken, sinful people with issues. If you don't get a hold of that and realize that and internalize that and meditate on that, then when you rebuke somebody, you're going to be self-righteous in your rebuke. Last attitude, besides gentleness and humility and prayerfulness is patience. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul is commanding the church at Thessalonica with regard to their love for one another as brothers, he begins by commanding them as to how they esteem highly and love their pastors for their work among them. You can internalize that verse later today. Um, (laughs) But I want to look at verse 14 as the way we love one another as brothers, and we urge you, verse 14 of First Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. You see, here comes the rebuke. You're admonishing the idol. In the context of First Thessalonians, these are the people who just refuse to get a job. These are the people who are just an outright sin, um, and they are rebellious, and they won't follow the command to get work because they're saying, well, Jesus is going to come at any time, so why work? He's saying listen these brothers are just in flat out rebelliousness rebuke them admonish the idol he goes on to say in the midst of that kind of rebuking encourage the faint hearted these are the people who are they want to follow the lord they want to walk away from their sin but it's just a constant struggle and they need they need encouragement so you're encouraging the faint hearted you're rebuking these idol people. You're encouraging the faint-hearted, and then he says, help the weak. These are the people that you're just picking them up and carrying them. I need help. This is the person who you run into in your family who's, who's adric- addicted to drugs and alcohol, and you rebuke them initially. And, and this is the thing, is that oftentimes you're rebuking and encouraging and carrying all, all, all at once in the life of a person, right? And you're making wisdom calls as to when do they need to be rebuked and when do they need to be encouraged and when do they need to be carried. And those are very difficult wisdom calls to make, I know. So you press into Christ and trust him and get ever more prayerful and humble because of that. But you're coming alongside them and you they say, I want to get rid of this drugs and alcohol, but I, I just can't do it on my own. And so you're helping carry them. But look at what he says because it's, it's sometimes easy for us to try to want to carry the weak because we understand that, or to want to encourage the faint-hearted, but admonishing the idol, it's easy to be really impatient with the idol, isn't it? And what's interesting is he goes on, he says this, "Be patient with them all." All of them, the idol, the faint-hearted and the weak be patient." Hear that command? You want to know your attitude and rebuke is patience. Gentleness, humility prayerfulness, and patience. Patience is one of the most difficult parts of biblical rebuke and restoration process. We don't want to be patient with others as God has been patient with us. He's been incredibly patient with us. The moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God have every right at that point to condemn them to hell. Right there and send them right there. Judge them in hell forever. End of story. Every right. But God was patient because he wants to bring his people to repentance and save them. And he was patient. And he's being patient right now. The only reason we, you, any of us have breath is because of the patience of God toward us. And we're to be patient with others. We're to be patient with them, but it's difficult. I, I know what this is like because we often walk couples through major, major issues and the major issues that we walk them through in the office are related to marriage most of the time. Not always. Sometimes we have people come in because they need to reconcile with other people on other issues. I hope you will seek that out as well. But they often come in for marriage issues. And when they come in, one party is generally offended the other party in some great way. And the party that has been offended is often the party that's going to struggle the most with patience. Not always, but often going to struggle most with patience. Because the person might, the other party, the offender might be repenting, but there's a long process of that offender learning to unwind that sin in their lives. And telling the offended, you have to be patient with that process. The other thing is, is that when this kind of forgiveness happens, which I'm going to talk about next week, where you're the offended party and you forgive them, you've made them this promise to forgive them, to not hold their sin against them, to not make them pay the debt and you've made this promise to do that for them, but there's this ongoing process of applying that in your life that is quite difficult. And so that as the, offended, or as the offender can sometimes get impatient with the offended, because they're like, why do you keep throwing it back in my face? And then the offended part says, I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't do that. And you have to be patient with each other. And it's difficult because we're prideful and we forget God is patient with us every day, every moment of every day. He's patient. Not just with your sin, but you. You're a, you're a sinner. You're not just sinful. Okay, what's the process for rebuke? This is the last part, because we've talked about the goal is restoration. The motive is love. The attitudes are gentleness and humility and patience and prayerfulness What's the process? Um, Look at Matthew chapter 18 and I'm going to just skim over this briefly. I'm not going to spend much time here but I want to give you a brief understanding of the process for rebuke that Jesus gives and really an expanded version of what he's teaching in Luke 17 here in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18 starting verse 15. If your brother sins against you Go and tell him his fault. Now, notice all that I loaded in there. Go and tell him his fault with the intent of reconciliation, right? That's the goal. With the motive of love for them, not just for yourself. I want to get mine here, but love for them that they would, that you care about them and want to help them bear their burden. With the attitudes of humility and gentleness and prayerfulness and patience. In that context, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why he sinned against you, you don't need to go spread it around to everybody else. You don't need to ask 15 different people whether you ought to confront him. That's just gossip. Guys, dads, I need advice. Go to him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You see the goal re- reference there again? It's to win your brother. You want him to listen to you so that you win him because you want him reconciled to God and to you. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I don't have time to unwind all this, but this isn't just saying, like, look, if the brother's confessing his sin and he's saying, yeah, I did this, but I'm not going to repent. Now you go and get a couple of other people and say, hey, listen, I've confronted this brother, and we need to go talk to him. I need some more of you and the members of the body to help me speak with this brother about his sin because he, he's saying he's done it, but he won't repent. Now you take them, and, and they become witnesses to his lack of repentance. But I want to be clear about that. That's not the original intent here. The original intent is other people may have witnessed this, and they're establishing the fact that the sin happened. What you do not want to do is walk through the process of church discipline where you come forward and say, you know what, uh, I caught you in this sin. I didn't do that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I'm going to go get some other people and tell them about what I caught you doing. And I'm going to bring them in. And now three people are there saying, well, so-and-so told us you did it. So you did it. No, I didn't do it. Yes, you did. Let's go to the elders. Now we're putting the brother out. He said, I didn't do it. Now it's one guy's word against another, and you're putting him out of the church? That isn't what's being referenced here. What's being referenced here is the attempt of the church Through first an individual, and then through more people if necessary, and then further through the rest of the body as we go down through the passage, to bring this brother to repentance, to reconcile him to Christ and to the body. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Here's the point. You start taking this brother through the process of rebuke, and and in doing that, you walk through steps. You start off with them personally. If they just won't repent, you bring other people in, and you get more help. And if they still won't repent, you're going to bring it to the church. You don't ever want to have to take it there. We never want to take it there. We have taken it there with this at Sovereign Grace, but we don't like to take it there. It's not something we over hope to do, but we love you enough to do it, and we will go there. Now, I want to say one other thing about this. This isn't a rapid-fire process, okay? These aren't like three steps to throwing somebody out of the church you don't like, okay? Step one, go tell him you thought he was sinning. Step two, bring some others that you gossip to about his potential sin. Step three, tell it to the whole church. Throw him out. You can have it all done in one afternoon, that isn't what's happening here. This is an ongoing process. Step one may take months. Because you may see some signs of repentance, and then maybe you'll see backsliding again, and then you'll see some signs of repentance. And you're walking through making the wisdom call, when do I bring other people in? And then then step two might take a while as you're bringing other people in and trying to walk through that with that brother. And then step three might take a while as you're going through the church to have potentially even um. What, what you might call a trial, although I don't, I don't like using that word, but what you might call a trial in front of the church for the purpose of dealing with a brother. But why do you do any of this? Why do we put ourselves out there for our brothers and sisters? Because we want to win them to Christ. That's our hope. That's the posture. Why? Because in Christ... We are fundamentally ministers of reconciliation. This is now who we are in Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we'll conclude there for today. And then next week I'll jump into forgiveness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And look at verse 14. We'll start there. Why do we do any of this? For the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. What love of Christ? See, it's not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's God's love in Christ shown to us in sending his son to live perfectly the life we failed to. Though we were transgressors of his law, though we were both sinners and those who committed sin, though we were enemies of God deserving judgment in hell, God out of his love for us and Christ out of his love for us was sent To live perfectly the life we failed to. To keep God's law in every point where Adam failed to, where Israel failed to, and where we have failed to. And then to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty due to us. He went there and paid it. Because he loved us. That's why he did it. Not because we're lovable. We're sinners. But because he's loving. He did that for us. And he paid it, and he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and sent his Spirit so that we would be united to him through faith, so that we could be forgiven for our sins, so that we could be declared righteous in him with his righteousness, so that we could be adopted as children instead of being his enemies. He did that all because he loved us. We didn't deserve any of it. It's his love to us. And when we get a hold of that, then that love, when we understand it, compels us. I don't deserve any of this. That kind of love compels me. It takes hold of my life. It has complete control of the love of Christ because I cannot believe the amazing love and grace shown to me. And now I want to show that to other people for the love of Christ compels us and controls us because we have concluded this, that one, that being Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, now catch that, why did he die for us? So that we who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Notice, who do you live for now that he saved you? Him. What did he save you from? Living for yourself. Why do you rebuke brothers in sin, gently and humbly and lovingly with the goal of restoration? Because Christ loves you and he has saved you from your devotion to yourself so that you can love other people. That's why. There he goes on for themselves who for, for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on verse 16 therefore we regard no one according to the flesh in other words according to worldly standards even though we once regarded Christ according to worldly standards of the flesh we regard him no longer therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what you're doing in rebuke. You're bringing them the message of reconciliation, imploring them to be reconciled to God. Now, they might already be Christians. If you're rebuking your brothers, they are. But you're still imploring them to be reconciled to God in an area of their life, in a sense, where they're not, where they have broken their communion with him in some way. He goes on to say this as he sums up the gospel in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin. The one who knew no sin, he made him to be sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Hear that summary? Why do you do this rebuking? Because the one in whom there was no sin he became sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. It's a free gift that he's given. And and that's why we lovingly, gently, humbly, with the goal of restoring our brothers, go to them and rebuke them. That's what we're called to do as Christians. May we be faithful to do so. Let me pray. Father, we ask that 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 we would be faithful ministers of reconciliation, that we would be faithful ambassadors of Christ, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave himself for us. That we would love our brothers well, that we would rebuke them well with the goal of reconciliation and restoration, with the motive of love for them, wanting to bear their burdens with them, with the attitude of humility and gentleness and prayerfulness and patience. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to our callings as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be ambassadors for your Son, not only to a lost and dying world, but to one another. So that your Son would be exalted in us and through us. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen.